Hey, really quick before we get started, please remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to check me out on my website, rhitch.com. I have a lot of great PDFs, white papers, past recordings of webinars, you name it, a lot of valuable information. And also please give this show a rating as I always appreciate your feedback. Hello and welcome back to the Financial Breakaway Podcast where I try to take confusing personal financial planning and investment related topics and try to break them down into plain English for the everyday person. My goal in these conversations is to help you break away from your personal financial confusion and end up on the right path to reaching your financial goals. I am Ryan Hitchcock, your host, and I am a financial planner with High Point Capital Group out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. All right, in this episode, I have two amazing guests, Mark Schwartz and Nick Cucci. Mark is the co-founder of a company called PDT, and Nick runs business development at PDT. Um, PDT is a product development company out of Chicago that became a subsidiary of Astronics in uh, 2017. And so this is meant to be an extra credit type episode, if you will, on the thematic investing series I just finished. And Nick and Mark were perfect to follow up these series because they actually work in what's called the business of innovation. And in my whole series, I was talking about how terms such as innovation or disruption have become just these big buzzwords in our industry with no kind of back meaning. But I think Nick and Mark, they live and breathe in the innovation every day, so they offer a really good perspective on on really what it means um, realistically. So in this episode, Nick and Mark, they help us understand how uh, products get from concept to commercialization. They How they put it is they are working on the products of tomorrow today. So and make sure to stick around to the end where we actually talk about some of these examples they're working on now, such as Li-Fi, which is an alternative to Wi-Fi, which transmits data using light waves. It's crazy. We also talk about a product they developed using ozonated water to disinfect your hands in seconds. And this is meant to be an alternative to washing your hands with chemicals. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. Mark was literally at every step of the development of the cell phone uh, as an engineer, dating back to his days at Motorola, who first made the cell phone in the 80s. And he helps reflect on his experience there, which gives us examples of why companies need to continue to innovate or risk going from a market leader to a market loser, very much like Motorola or uh, Nokia um, eventually did in the cell phone industry. So overall, Nick and Mark, they really help us understand that innovation really is important. It helps future-proof companies, and in their eyes, the most successful companies are innovators, and they spend money on it. So everything said in this episode, as a reminder, is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions alone. All statements regarding companies made are strictly beliefs or points of view held by Mark, Nick, or myself, and not a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Mark, Nick, or myself may or may not maintain positions in securities discussed. Okay, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Financial Breakaway Podcast. Welcome back. Um, Today, I have uh, what I'm calling an extra credit type of episode to my 
series on thematic investing that I recently released. And today we're going to be talking about the business of innovation. Um, I'm really excited. This is going to be a fun episode. I have some great guests with me today. I have Nick Cucci, who runs the business development at PDT, an astronics company. And I have Mark Schwartz, uh, who's the co-founder of PDT. How are you guys? Can you hear me okay? We're good. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank, thanks for being on. So uh, again, I'm excited to you know hear your guys' story and hear about the business of innovation um, and your insights. But before I turn it over to you, just uh, let me back up a second, make sure you know we're on the same page and though you listening are on the same page as, like I said, this is meant to be a, a extra credit type episode on that thematic investing series I just finished. Now in those episodes, I discussed what thematic investing is, what it means to me and in, in my practice practice and in general, and I profiled certain industries I like in thematic investing. Um, and how I did this is I interviewed actual experts working in those fields day in and day out, kind of boots on the ground to try to provide a unique perspective of, of what's really going on in, in those industries beyond you know buzzwords and headlines. Um, because in today's day of thematic investing, um, this world has really just been driven by buzzwords and headlines only. That's what I see all the time. So specifically, words like innovation and disruption are two of the most used words, but people really don't know what that is. So um, that's why I think this episode is going to be a great tie-in and kind of conclusion or extra credit episode, because um, we're actually going to talk about innovation. Uh, these experts, Mark and Nick, uh, work in the business of innovation. Maybe you didn't even know that is a business, but it is a business. They have an awesome business. So they're going to talk about like, where does innovation actually come from? How do we get new products to market from either, you know, the ideas, uh, like a concept from idea to commercialization. So let me turn it over to uh, Nick and Mark. And maybe Nick, I'll start with you. Uh, why don't you just give us a little background, you know, of, uh, of who you are and what, what you do right now? Sure. Yeah. So uh been in the game for about, I think, 12 years ago. Mark convinced me to join his company, talked me out of going into finance. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really an interesting tie-in to really work with the guys on the front lines that are driving change with new products and kind of creating tomorrow today, so to speak. While you're on that topic, uh, what's your, what does what PDT do? Um, and Mark, I know you're going to get into it since you co-founded the company, but from your side, Mark, Nick, what, do you, what is your kind of role? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're an innovation firm. What we do is we'll partner with, whether it's a, a small early stage startup or a large corporate Fortune 100, um, we partner with their R&D groups to uh, help them drive requirements, create new products to take to market. Um, so we're, we're basically the designers, the engineers, the researchers behind the scenes that that help a, a product uh, get through production. Awesome. So we're going to talk more about that. Um, and uh, again, thanks, Nick, for being here. So Mark, you co-founded PDT. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know your background in starting PDT, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. I started my career at uh, Zenith back in 1985. Um, and Back then, Zenith was a really famous brand, made televisions and yeah. VCRs and things like that, computers. I got really cut my teeth there, and then I got recruited to go over to Motorola right at the really hot stage of the commercialization and, and innovation of a cell phone. So Motorola invented the cell phone, and I was lucky enough to get on a team developing the cutting-edge phones. And back then, it was a very high-tech 
device. So it, it didn't have a lot of variety to it. It was kind of like they made one black one and that's the one you got. <laughs> and we, uh, my cube mate and I actually saw that cell phones were going to go consumer and, and big. Okay. And so we started PDT in 95 and the genesis behind us starting it was we were cell phone experts at the time and a lot of people were leaving Motorola and going to all kinds of different places that were doing cell phones, Qualcomm, Sony, you know, other startups. And Scott and I had the feeling that if we started PDT, we could be the go-to guys to help all these other startups because we had this valuable experience we had gained right on the cutting edge, you know? So then what ended up happening was, PDT grew really fast. Um, we were the 22nd fastest growing on the Inc. 500 list in 2000. Uh, we won the award again the next year. Wow. We got Congrats. recognized for entrepreneurism and innovation and Entrepreneur Hall of Fame and things like that. But along the way, um, we really diversified into a lot of different industries. So think about you're a cell phone expert and you want to get into medical, well, naturally, the first product you do is a glucose meter, for example, right? Because it's very much, you know, and you look, you look back at it now and the world really revolves around cell phones. Yeah. And so many products are similar to a cell phone. So we got into the military space and we did handsets, military handsets. Of course, they're super rugged and things, but essentially, they're kind of like a cell phone. We got into public safety and did uh, radios for first responders and um, you know, and then, and then the next thing, you know, you're innovating all over the place. You're, you're in all these industries and you get a reputation and, and people come to you to do stuff that's never been done before. So well, that's very interesting. And con congratulations, by the way. So, um, so just for clarification, so is your background or both of yours backgrounds, um, engineering or no, I'm a, a mechanical engineer by background. Yeah. Okay. And Nick, you're, are you an engineer or more business side? I, uh, I'm, I'm the business marketing guy. So uh, my background is non-technical, but obviously understanding design engineering principles. So actually, you know, interestingly enough, my kids played, um, I was a high school hockey coach and Nick was a referee. And I was always, you know, high school hockey games can be, white can get out of hand and stuff particularly there's a lot of testosterone flying around right and I was always super impressed with how well Nick handled the fans the players and the coaches frankly because there's there was a mixed bag there oh yeah I was always the calm coach but there were certainly some other guys that were not <laughs> but anyway um so I met Nick that way and I was always really impressed with his personality and, and the way he handled things and and then my kids went on to play college and Nick shows up and he's refereeing the college games because he was kind of aspiring to make his way up the ranks of, of refereeing. And I finally grabbed him after one of the NIU games and I said, you know, Nick, what are you going to do with your life? He said, I'm going to be a professional referee. And I said, you know, that may, that might be the case, but if you ever think about, you know, being a business development guy, I'd really love to have you come work for my company. So um, so you snatched him up off the hockey rink. I snatched him up. And, and he's also, you know, so PDT has a hockey team. And Nick, of course, is 
Well, he used to be the ringer, but he's aged a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty funny how it kind of came around too, because, you know, I went and got my MBA and the traditional path is you're, you're going to go into to finance or management consulting, right? Investment sure. banking, management or, or consulting on Main Street. And, um, you know, I, I ran into Mark in the locker room, you know, a friend of mine who had interned at PDT at the time, uh, he's like, yeah, you know, my, my the company that I interned for starting a hockey team, would you want to play? And I had just finished playing in college and stuff. I said, yeah, you know what? I'll jump on a team. And Mark was in the locker room and, um, you know, we were just kind of catching up and stuff like that. And he was asking, you know, you're graduating, what are you planning on doing? And he's like, you know, I'd like you to come in and tour the facility. I want you to check out what my company does. And at the time I had no idea what his company did. Um, but you know, I always kind of looked at product development as like one smaller piece of supply chain and operations. And so I go and I tour the facility and I'm actually wearing a suit too. So <laughs> Mark and uh, a handful of the guys on the hockey team see me in the office wearing a suit and immediately they start ripping me. Right? <laughs> you don't wear a suit and you definitely don't wear a tie. Um, so we're in the facility and yeah, definitely stood out. I looked like a banker. It was awful. Yeah. Um, so tour the facility and you're, you know, you're seeing the 3d printing and the CNC machining and in the model shop, uh, there's, there's a full automotive, uh, paint booth, spray booth in there too, for the okay. prototypes and stuff like that. And I just like, there was so much cool stuff going on. I was absolutely blown away and you know, by the end of the tour, I was already sold and I wasn't, wasn't going to tour the facility to, to, to get a new job, but I was pretty excited about the opportunity. And you were sold there. there. I was just, sold, yeah, so. just, uh, all the cool things going on. So, well, that, that's a good jumping off part. Like, so let, let's talk about that. So this, you know, quote unquote business of innovation, it, it's kind of a new concept to me and, and Nick, you know, just knowing you over the years, that's how we, we, you know, connected to do this podcast and, and great presence on LinkedIn. If you know, follow him, whoever's listening, um, you know, that sparked that idea. I was like, well, what, what is, what is really the business of innovation? How, you know, to me, and, and, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I would venture out to say that the everyday person doesn't know how innovation really comes about. They might think, you know, the, the Mark Zuckerberg's of the world are sitting in their dorm room and thinking of ways to make an app. Um, and then that becomes a billion dollar business or whatever, but that's far from the truth or one-offs. Um, you guys are the facilitator of innovation. So maybe just explain how that, that process works if you can and, and dumb it down for myself even. Yeah. So I, I think uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably fans of Mad Men. I like to think in a lot of ways, it's what we do, uh, maybe 50, 60 years later. Um, very much like advertising agencies, right? You're basically working behind the scenes to plan out new products and execute on the product development and taking, helping the client take these products to market. Um, the process is different, whether it's software or, or, you know, in this case, we're talking more about hardware and physical products where... Uh, in software, you typically you start and you can start with an extremely uh, small budget bootstrap, uh, getting a, a minimum viable product, an MVP. Um, and then, you know, as that product is in beta testing is what they would say. They, they're constantly refining their product and, you know, iterating on their product based on the feedback that they're getting from their beta testers and from their users. Um, where it's a little different with physical product development and hardware is eventually 
you know, you have to commit to tooling, right? And, and parts of the process that have a significant capital expense, right? It's definitely much uh, more expensive to get a hardware product off the ground uh, into the market than uh, software in a lot of cases, um, where a lot of that risk is in the upfront planning, uh, defining the requirements for the product. And it gets a lot more complex when you're talking about you know, uh, uh, electronics or an electromechanical type of product where there are a lot of moving parts um, where you really want to define what the requirements are going to be for that product, but also know what the problem is that you're solving um, and, and designing a product towards solving that problem. So um, typically from a process standpoint, it starts and everything in new product development is grounded in research. There are two different sides of it. There's quantitative research, which is, you know, your, your focus groups where people are asking targeted questions and getting their answers back. And then the company will evaluate and say, yeah, the customers X percentage of these customers are saying they want this feature or that feature. Um, where product designers and engineers kind of come in is they focus on what's qual called qualitative research, voice of the customer, voice of the business. Uh, where they're basically observing stakeholders, whether it's a maintenance guy or an end user or, you know, the executive in the company versus the engineer in the company on how the product should be developed. They gather all of this information, all of this data, and they'll also observe end users in their environment working with the product to kind of figure out what the pain points are, whether that customer knows what it is or not. And then they design a product towards that, right? You basically cook that into the project brief and the requirements statement of work. Um, so I think Steve Jobs kind of had a saying where he would say, you know, people don't know what they want until you tell them. Um, Henry Ford kind of said the same thing. He had the, a similar mentality, right? Where if, you know, Henry Ford had said, if, if people wanted, if they knew what they wanted and we developed products for them, we'd still be using a horse and a carriage, right? Sure not a yeah. model so yeah yeah that, that makes that makes perfect sense um yeah so that's just just really interesting to me because i never really knew you know how that that process works um so you're bringing together if i'm hearing you right like a, a technology or some existing product and and you're trying to find and mark you you mentioned this earlier different uses for that or or kind of similar uses but in different model or, or you know whatever you want to call it am I, am I explaining that kind of correctly sure think about think about it this way <clears throat> and then i'm going to tell you a story from my career here in a second back sure. up a little bit. but think about uh um nick talked about ethnographic research or or observing people using everyday products mm -hmm. and how that can drive innovation. So let's say, for example, uh, Ryan, you, uh, you are a do-it-yourselfer and we recruit you to come over and we pay you a fee to turn the cameras on and watch you use your cordless power tool, your port, let's say cordless drill. Let's keep it specific here. Sure. And so now, first we interview you and you say, you articulate what you like about drills and maybe what you don't like about them. 
I wish I had more battery power. I wish I could, if it drop, if I drop it, it doesn't break or et cetera. Sure. You know, kind of rudimentary things that you think in your mind are important. The second thing that we do is we turn the cameras on and we hide in the background (laughs) and we watch you use your power tool. Right. And the next thing, you know, we pick up on those like workarounds, for example, um, Oh, you know, he switches a lot from a Phillips head to a Torx driver. And then I notice he loses it. He loses one of them and he's frustrated. Why don't we put a little clip on here to hold it or a little magnetic area? Or, you know, I noticed that he drills uh, in some areas where the lighting isn't that good. Why don't we put one of those little flashlights on there for when he hits the trigger? So it's those sometimes users, stakeholders can lead you to innovation and not even know it. Interesting. Right? And maybe, maybe, maybe the guys running the camera aren't experts and do-it-yourselfers, but it's amazing what you can pick up just by watching people. So that, that goes to my, my story. So I mentioned, yeah. I, mentioned I, I, I started my career at Zenith, and you young guys probably never even heard of Zenith, but back then <laughs> Zenith was unbelievably famous. Everyone had a Zenith television. And in my fourth fourth year there, the genius CEO decided to cut R&D and basically get rid of it. And guess what? Wow. The company tanked. This unbelievable brand tanked. Um, Then I go to Motorola. And I can tell you that I've had a front row seat to where instead of building products that the users wanted back then. I mean, they invented the cell phone and they are like tiny amount of market share now. It's really sad. And what the reason why that happened and the reason back in the day that Nokia had their lunch was that Nokia got stuck in the executive's ego and they were making phones the executives wanted and they weren't going out to customers and doing research. And then, you know, Nokia, you know, Motorola was making all these crazy features in software and stuff that nobody even used or cared nobody about. Needed, yeah. And they were, they, they were stuck on the, the old LED um, displays and they were staying analog and not digital. And then Nokia comes along and makes these, these really cool phones with color screens, LCD color screens, interchangeable housings, cool ringtones, right? And yeah. the next thing you know, the Motorola market share completely tanks and Nokia takes over. Well, then guess what? Nokia settles in on their laurels. And the next thing you know, up comes Palm and Trio. And then they they tank. And here comes the, the Goliath of them all, Apple. Sure. Apple, re, Apple was not even close to the first cell phone company, but they were the ones that they, the, the innovative thing that Apple did, in my opinion, was not only did they make it more of a screen, they, it, it was less of a mechanical engineering feat of flipping and sliding and all that. Yeah. Stuff, and became just a screen. And, and but the, the, the really the important thing that Apple did, in my opinion, was they were the first ones to open up access to the phone and, and apps. This whole notion of, we will give you access to the, the, gyro, the uh, gyrometer. The, we'll give you access to the GPS gyroscope, yeah. the GPS coordinates, all that stuff. And then all of a sudden they had this huge network of people developing apps for free. 
And, and that's what made people get completely attached to iPhones and made them completely dominate the market like, like none other. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because yeah. when the first iPhone was launched in 2007, the app ecosystem, the app store actually was closed off, right? So they weren't using third-party developers. And when they finally made that decision where they were going to open it up, that's when it just exploded, right? And, and, the, and so what I'm hearing is by researching, doing the research and seeing what the actual end user consumer wanted, they're, they're making those changes. And that's, yeah, that's what I think, yes. I mean, oh, there was another one back up a couple years before that, right? The Apple, before they released the, the first iPhone in 2007, Apple actually had partnered with Motorola at the time and launched a phone, uh, the Moto, Moto Rocker, if anybody remembers that, like early 2000s. Um, and it was a phone that had capabilities of an MP3 player, right? So Apple had already kind of gotten some traction with the iPod and stuff like that. And they basically took their learnings from partnering with Motorola on this rocker to cook, cook the MP3 capability into the, the uh, initial iPhone then too, right? So sure, yeah. knowing and understanding that people were basically carrying around two different products, they were carrying around their MP3, whether it was an iPod or a Zune, if you may remember that. Oh, yeah. Um, but then that plus their phone, they, they basically made it an all-in-one handheld solution. Yeah. It just iterated from there. Yeah. It's, I mean, it makes perfect sense when you actually think about it. It's just, you know, there's, there's people actually doing that work and, and solving the problems for us everyday people. Um, and Mark, that's, that's really cool to hear. So you literally have been a front row seat watching this whole cell phone explosion come i mean we can't do anything without a cell phone right now yeah no and i if you look at the it was like seven years you know like motorola had their heyday it was almost exactly seven years nokia had their heyday it was almost exactly seven years rim everybody had a rim phone right and and they had their heyday and it was almost exactly seven years now of course um iphone is here to stay and they're well beyond the seven year and they're going to dominate for a long time but um that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Seven year, yeah. And it was it's all about. Um, I, to me, it was all about ego. Like I remember talking to the the, the head guy at Rim and saying, "Hey, I got this uh, medical device customer that wants to partner with you and do this glucose meter, a smart glucose meter, or something." And he was he was like, "Ha, we'll never do that." You know, tell him to get a truck full of money and maybe we'll think about it and stuff. And it was just like. You, you can't help but think to yourself, like your ride is going to end with that attitude. Yeah. Cause that's not the attitude to have. And I realize everybody has a Blackberry right now, but somebody's going to get you and, and you know, you're going to miss it. And that's why, you know, the whole point of the podcast is investing. Right. And I think that's where, you know, guys like you, Ryan can help the average investor with the research you do. And this whole notion of, who are the innovative customers? Because the innovative customers are the ones that future-proof their customers and our companies. And they're the mm-hmm. ones that uh, see their stocks always increasing. And, you know, when you think about who are some of the most successful companies, they're all really innovative. Yeah. Oh, for sure. money on it, right? They don't yeah. skim it and they spend 10% of their, you know, revenue on it. So... Yeah, I so think some of, your, uh, some of your listeners, some of your uh, clients would appreciate, I'm sure they're hockey guys, right? It's, oh, yeah. 
Wayne Gretzky said, skate with Fina- the Financial going. breakaway t- ties into uh, the name skate of the Skate with going, not where it's been. Oh, yeah. That's, that, that's a good, yeah. Yeah. That's relatable to your industry. That makes perfect sense. Um, and would you say, kind of, you know, to, to your guys' point there, would, is that what made PDT successful? Is you saw egos get in the way in your past careers. Um, and so you understood, yeah, you couldn't do that in your, in your position. And, and is, did that help the success of PDT? There's two things. There's two things. There's two pieces to innovation, right? So we, we've talked a lot about, innovation in regards to like the product requirement and interesting new features and basically building a better mousetrap, right? That's, that's one element of it. And we've always been big advocates for research. And even if a customer didn't have a budget for research, we were, you know, we had 150 employees or whatever. So we would use do friends and family research, right? We would, we would do these super low budget things and say, Oh, my, my brother is a, back to the drill example. Yeah. My brother happens to be a home remodeler, you know, give him a hundred bucks. You could follow him with a camera or whatever. So <laughs> but that's the thing about eth- ethnographic research. It's really not critical quantity, right? You just go out and talk to seven, eight people and you, and you get what you need. The second yeah. part of innovation though, whereas another part where, where we come in and that is technology, right? So oftentimes People come, you know, uh, there's a a disruptive technology out there and no one's ever uh, deployed the technology before and you you create products around technology and since the technology is brand new, someone like us who who were very technical with a whole bunch of big bench of engineers um, can help do the execution and deployment of that technology, which is very hard also, right? So yeah. think, of a, think of a technology you've maybe never heard of, right? We've all heard of Wi-Fi, where you use wireless RF, you know, to transfer yep. data. Uh, there's a technology called Li-Fi now, uses light. Yeah, I wanted to ask you guys about this. That's perfect. Yeah. This is so interesting, it's crazy. So imagine, imagine, you know, <clears throat> Back to the early days of Morse code, right? You would have a ship flashing light <clears throat> really slowly and someone with a pencil and paper um, deciphering that Morse code, right? Mm-hmm. Now multiply that by a zillion and <laughs> modulate that light a zillion times faster. And you're talking about gigabit per second speed using light, right? So why is that important? Well, RF isn't always good, right? Like if you're on the battlefield, you don't want to use RF because it gives away your position. It's very easy to triangulate where something is broadcasting, where, you know, light doesn't do that. Uh, just for example. So yeah, that's, that's so R- R- like, go ahead. I was just going to say, just, just to clarify what, so RF um, is like Wi-Fi, right? And that's the, the technical right. term of like a Wi-Fi. And so that gives off a, like a signature of some sort, like you said, if you're on a battlefield. Um, but this Wi-Fi is literally light. It's a, literally a light beam that's transferring data, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, so if you think that's about insane. If you think of any LED-based light bulb, you can Wi-Fi enable that by hooking up the modulator and so here's the other thing too, Ryan, if, if you had Li-Fi up in your ceiling 
and that's what was driving, right? No one could hack that. No one could jam it because it's line of sight, yeah, right? There's Where, no way to access it. Yeah. I could stand outside your window and swipe your Wi-Fi. That's yeah, easy, right? sure. So, so like, but you'd have to be in my office to be able to take my I data. Have to, I'd have to be under the light. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So you think about a, a, you know, a trade show or something where everybody has Wi-Fi going and yeah. swiping yeah. from each other. You, you know, it, you could, you could Wi-Fi enable the booth, right? And only you would have that data. So again, it, back to the, the point is that, you know, sometimes innovation is driven around new technologies. And then the third part of it is, you know, simply put, some industries move faster than others. Like cell phones tend to be the fastest moving industry where you see the innovation first. Mm-hmm. But then there's the cross-pollination to the slower ones. So cross-pollination of technology is important too, where, you know, medical is always going to lag cell phones or consumer products. Militaries you know, sometimes cutting edge, sometimes it's not. Um, you know, NASA is famous for inventing things for space that become, you know, it's always famous that, you know, a, a rollerball ink pen would not work in space. And that's how the pencil was de- developed. Oh, right? I never knew that. Because gravity messes up. Uh, uh, ink. The ink flow. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So NASA created a pencil for that reason. And obviously everybody uses pencils. Yeah. So, um, there's uh, the technology play, and then there, like I say, the cross-pollination of the technology. Yeah, I think on that point too, I actually mentioned in a recent blog post, right? Uh, take the COVID pandemic as an example, right? In response to the COVID pandemic, the point is like this cross-industry type of you know projects and work, engagement, collaboration, whatever you want to call it, it's really more common than you think, right? So after the pandemic. Um, you know, right before that, NASA had announced that they were going to be, uh, you know, releasing their new uh, moon vehicle, right, okay. lunar okay. rover. Um, and then the pandemic hit and the engineers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 37 days developed a ventilator to support, you know, the whole ventilator scramble right at the beginning of the yeah. pandemic. Oh, yeah. So, and they were partnering with medical device manufacturers and you know experts, kind of like the world that we live in, right? In at PDT and, and firms very much like that, to get that thing out in record time. Yeah, that's they were just able to pivot. That is so cool. Um, so what, you know, like just kind of talking about people like yourselves. So like you guys working in that industry, what kind of person? does it take to be in this type of industry that you're in? And maybe I'll take that further. How, how do you really stay abreast of these either new technologies or how do you see the cross-pollination? Um, how do you bring those together? I mean, kind of an open-ended question, but um, you know, take it where you will, if, if you don't mind. So I'm i I'm biased. Uh, might sound, I don't know, might sound cocky, I suppose. I, I don't know. I don't want to be cocky, but when you work, when I, the re, one of the reasons we started PDT was when I worked at Motorola, I definitely felt like I was an expert on cell phones. I knew how to design a front housing, a rear housing, pick a display, put a flip hinge in there, or the, whatever. But yeah. when you think about it, that was so specific of one thing. Sure. And I just could not see 
spending my whole career doing a cell phone after a cell phone after a cell phone. Yeah. And so are there smart, innovative people at Motorola? Sure there was. I wanted, but I wanted to be like on the all-star team, right? So when you go to PDT, Motorola is just one of thousand customers. Okay. So now, now you're getting involved and becoming an expert in some of the things I mentioned earlier, like medical devices and glucose meters or public safety radios and military handsets. And you, and because you get this huge diverse um, exposure to all these companies, industries, and technologies, when people come to you, it's like taking the blinders off. That's why outsourcing to an innovation firm or a product development firm occasionally really can open your eyes to, you know, get out of your lane once in a while and see something different, have something yeah, different have perspective. challenge what you're doing. And then also say, Hey, have you ever heard of life? I that maybe we should do a intrinsically safe, which means, you know, won't blow up a cell phone for, oil rigs or something when you're working around natural gas or something can our because oh. rf can spark a fire oh geez and, yeah. and have someone say oh wow yeah we should li-fi enable a cell phone for that specific thing and expand our market or whatever so the point is you're 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 telling people what they don't know um and i, I think it's helps them expand their revenue and their product portfolio and be the first to market with something, right? That's important. Yeah, I so, think uh, when you're talking about industries that are just historically more slower, they're slower moving industries, aerospace, defense, medical, they're very well known for only partnering and only working with companies that focus on that industry. And, you know, a lot of times what that ends up leading to is, you know, we say basically you have tunnel vision or you're designing in a vacuum, right? Where you kind of have to have more of an open mind into things that, you know, may not be the traditional way of doing things, but things that can actually help you accelerate the product development process, the innovation process, the ability to move quicker and be more nimble is an advantage at the end of the day. So yeah, I'll interrupt you one more time, Ryan. I, I would draw the analogy to you, right? Yes. Okay. Why do, why do people, why do people hire a, financial advisor well that's because what it's what you do all day it's what you're an expert in yeah it makes it, and you know you know the market and you know the, the diversity of markets and foreign markets and how to do puts and calls and stuff where the average guy they don't they're not gonna why would you want to figure that out because you don't want to have a learning curve and mess something up but you don't want a product to take two years to go to market if you can hire someone that's a little smarter than you to do it in a year or, or to or the analogy back to you is you don't really want to mess up your investments yeah. by yeah. Try, trying to learn on the fly and coach yourself or whatever. Right. So yeah. no, that makes perfect sense. I, I often use like the example of like you were talking about the do it yourself or at home, fixing up a bathroom or something. Sure. It's, in my case, I'm terrible at home, but let's say I, I can do some stuff. I, I could probably do a bathroom um over a, a long period of time because i don't know all the industry tricks and trades so but if you hire somebody that that does it every day they they can get it done in probably you know less than a week type of thing so i hear you that makes perfect sense thanks for that analogy um so what you know kind of moving forward here a little bit what it like this 
world of innovation, is it just going crazy right now? Is it changing at a faster speed than normal to you guys? Or has it, is it always changing fast or always has been? Yeah, so I think adaptability and, you know, being comfortable with ambiguity is something that's a must when you're working in this type of industry. Um, you know, the industry is constantly changing. Technology is constantly evolving and you have to stay on top of these trends and these insights to really do well at your job. Um, you know, from a business standpoint over the last 10 years, there's really been a lot of consolidation. Um, it's, it's pretty rare to find independent uh, product development firms um, that have been around for a very long time just because of the nature of the business that we're in where, you know, your expertise is very specific and you, it may only be needed once every couple of years with a certain client, right? So you're really trying to make sure that the company is diversified enough where you're not, you know, heavy in one industry versus another when something happens like in, uh, we'll just take commercial uh, aviation as an example, right? Um, 2018, the 737 MAX was grounded, right? And Boeing yeah. was basically halted and their entire supplier base was basically shut down. Um, and then on top of that, once the pandemic came around, all of commercial transportation was shut down. You know, if, if you're, you know, I, I guess too exposed to commercial aviation in this, in this uh, case versus being in other industries, you know, your company is going to suffer, right, as a result yeah. of that. Um, but going back to your question, just innovation firms in particular, like I said, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of consolidation. Um, you know, there were a lot of companies that we knew 10 years ago that are no longer around whether they were uh, acquired by another company or they just shut down completely um, because they didn't have that diversification model set up where they can kind of have that sustainable revenue to weather the storm. Uh, I mean, I have to give Mark and, and his co-founder, Scott, all the credit in the world for not being so, uh, I guess, committed to, to one way of doing things and being open-minded and reinventing the business in a lot of ways, multiple times to weather the storm. Sure. No, that's, that's very interesting. So do you, do you see the industry, is it kind of a, a winner takes all in the product development world or do smaller firms do better or these bigger firms that have bigger affiliations? Um, I know you guys are uh what would you call yourself? You guys, uh, you guys are a part of Astronics, but um, what, where do you guys fit on that food chain? If you don't mind explaining a little bit. Yeah, I think it's definitely, it's a lot of times more often than not, you know, other firms can be seen as partners more so than they are competitors in a lot of ways. Oh. I think generally speaking, there's enough work for everybody to go around. Um, it really kind of falls on the expertise that your particular firm has what you guys, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. Um, you know, more often than not, we're having conversations with guys that run other groups to get an understanding of what their sweet spot really is. And, and we'll partner on projects. Um, I think, you know, two heads are better than one in that case, right? Where you kind of figure out what's in the best interest of the client and that project in particular to make sure that that's successful. Uh, that's kind of, you know, the approach that we would take more so than saying, Hey, this is us. We don't want anybody yeah. else involved. Right. So, you know, you think, if, yeah. you, I guess summarize this way too. <clears throat> PDT is a bigger firm 
And over the years, <clears throat> we you start to shy away from smaller companies and inventors, for example. Okay. Right? And so, um, but you, you have an advantage because you have a lot of resources and a, and a deep portfolio. And the, the portfolio is very convincing that, hey, you've done this before, you can do it again. But that leaves a little bit, that leaves some companies out. And so like recently, my son, Kevin, started a PDT clone called Hatch Product Development. Okay. And uh, the name Hatch implies that it's there to help smaller companies. Like it's like startups. Okay. So I guess I could draw another analogy to the financial industry, right? I love it. I love it. You have a zillion dollars, you go to Goldman Sachs or something. Yeah. If, if you're a smaller time investor, Goldman Sachs probably won't give you the time of day and you, you go to a smaller whatever. So there's, there, there, there is a little bit of a um, size fit type of a thing, just like anything, right? Yeah, uh, okay. You go to a big box store for certain things, you go Ace Hardware for certain things. I mean, it's, it's, there, there is a little bit of a how you service and who, who's going to give you the time and attention you deserve, right? Gotcha. No, that's good insight. Um, so a couple, maybe just let me throw a couple quick questions at you guys here. Just, just, uh, you know, expand on this, this business of innovation. It's been a very insightful conversation so far. So thank you. Um, and then I want to maybe pick your brains at the end here on a couple more of your cool, like up and coming technologies. Like you talked about the, the Li-Fi. That's amazing. I know, you know, from your website, even looking, there's so many kind of randomly cool things, but I'll, I'll, maybe I'll pick your brains on a couple if you don't mind. Um, but quick questions. Um, what's kind of the biggest hurdle in just making innovation happen between industries? So you talked about there's there's smaller firms, bigger firms, but I'm guessing there's uh, common hurdles to making innovation happen. Is that true or what's your take on that? The biggest part is innovation is a process and it's cutting edge and therefore you know we use tools like gantt charts for example to lay out the process phase one phase two phase three prototype alpha beta gamma yeah but the thing is you just don't know where you're going to take it on the chin sometimes where despite the process and despite your best efforts it's you know this particular technology is just way harder than we thought and it takes longer and costs more money and there's delays. I mean, we all know that like, I don't know, someone like Rivian, you know, invents this new car. Yeah. Right. And if you looked back in a year and a half ago, they, their aspiration was, yeah, we'll ship that, you know, first quarter of 2021 and then <laughs> second quarter of 2021 and then oh we have startup problems and then yeah. we have some engineering problems with reliability issues we have whatever so i mean when you're plugging and chugging and doing a cordless drill right you're probably going to hit your numbers right because it's been done a number of times but yeah. when you're doing something truly innovative that incorporates new technologies and stuff the biggest challenge ryan for sure is just staying in it Right. Cause, cause it's, it's really hard getting over the roadblocks. Cause there's going to be them. estimate time and money when it's invention. Cause it hasn't been done before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Elon, Elon Musk can probably speak to the challenges of scaling production, right. When he was oh. working 20 hour days and sleeping under his desk, literally sleeping on the floor. Yeah. 
Um, no, that's okay. Thanks for that, that answer. Okay. Um, maybe this will be my last question. We'll move into some products if you don't mind. Um, so like Mark, for you, you've been in this world of innovation since you said in the, in the mid to late eighties. Um, and Nick, you've been in it for, you know, over a decade as well. Um, what keeps you guys engaged in kind of the future of innovation or the, the innovation of innovation, if, if saying it a different way, what do you, what do you guys think about that or what keeps you involved? Well, Nick and I are wired similarly in that it, like I personally enjoy building the relationships and meeting new, interesting people having um, people look up to your opinion and experience and, and then showing off your portfolio of what you've done in the past. And, you know, you reminisce on that stuff. And then they call the customer and the customer says, Oh yeah, it was a great experience. And, and then you, then, then you land the deal. Right. And it's, yeah. all that stuff is fun. Um, of course there's, like I said, there's bumps in the road getting from A to Z because it's hard. Yeah. But, but it is, it's really cool to be able to see someone walking down the phone, uh, walking down the street using a phone that you designed or walking through Menards and saying, yeah, we worked on that plunging router over there or, <laughs> or whatever, or, you know, other, other products people don't know as much about, but we did a product for Medtronics that's for um, Parkinson's people, you know, and it, it was just under the skin and planted uh, device that was an interbrain neurostimulator, basically. And for the, to see a person with Parkinson's shaking like this, and then the doctor turns this device on that we helped develop and and you're just like, wow, that, that had we, to be like, emotional. Seriously, we seriously changed the quality of the per person, you know, the whole group of people's lives, right? Yeah. So, yeah, one of my best friends, independently turns out he got that he ended oh, up Parkinson's and then he got the thing we designed implanted and it was life-changing for him wow that, that's got to be powerful yeah and we worked on a we worked on a product that was actually it was spin-off nasa technology um that they created a business in the mid-80s using this technology to launch their first product it was a, a laser ablation system so it basically is like the the cure for heart disease okay uses a laser to kind of clean out your arteries. Jeez. That's just talking about the transfer of, you know, cross-pollination of industries. That's, that's so cool. Um, well, what about you, Nick? What keeps you, you in it to, to throw at you real quick? I think the common denominator in all of it is, you know, just like Mark was talking about the partnerships, right? Working with forward thinking clients that are open-minded and, and willing to try new things. Um, but also just, waking up on Monday morning and being excited to go to work. Right. I think a big yeah. part of it is the people that you work with at the end of the day. And <laughs> you know, even if they have a lot of gray hair, like this guy, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, just having the mindset of, you know, uh, I don't know, Reed Hoffman, right. The, the founder of, of LinkedIn, um, you know, his quote is permanent beta, right. You're constantly growing, constantly improving. And, but you also, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. And I love being able to work. Nick never has that problem. I never have that problem. <laughs> um, but I love being I love able it. to be in a room with so many brilliant people, you know, solving real problems in the world. Like that's, 
that's not common. You don't come across it. Yeah. Luckily for, for the type of stuff that we do, we do get to do this stuff every day. Right. Um, so it's amazing. It's yeah. the work is a, is a lot of fun. Not many people can say that they enjoy their job. Right. For sure. No, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting careers you guys have had. Congratulations on those. Um, for sure. I mean, it's, it's very cool to see how, you know, you know to me, I, I didn't, I never even really knew this either until, you know, talking with you guys and, and setting this up and now talking to you more um, on really how things get, you know, invented or, um, you know, a lot of times you just think like, Oh, somebody had a great idea. I just keep coming back to that, but that's not the case. It's a lot of collaboration between, um, you know, from what I'm hearing collaboration between industries and, and kind of cross pollination of, of technology. So, um, so anyways, that's cool. So let, if you don't mind, let's just, just throw out some, a couple, cool things that are kind of next gen. Um, we already talked about the, the Li-Fi. I, I don't know if you want maybe give me a quick background of this. I see ozonated water, if I say it right, or there's the array of things, which actually has been around for a while, but that I saw that looks pretty cool. Um, you know, whatever you guys think uh, is kind of next gen, maybe give us some insight. Yeah, ozonated water is actually a, a project that Mark was pretty involved in, so we can go into a little more detail, but it's basically, it's a, a natural disinfectant, right? So it's the same disinfection process. They use the same ozonated water to purify the, the water that you drink out of your water bottle, right? That you buy okay. at the grocery store. Um, so it was a project that started as a corporate R&D effort uh, with a Fortune 500 company. Um, and the product that we were working on was a hand rinsing device. Um, it was designed to be a medical device. So there was a lot of the clinical data to back up and prove that it kills viruses uh, and disease viruses, including coronavirus. Um, and long story short, this, this company decided they didn't want to get into the costly uh, medical device uh, game. So the, the lead scientist on the project who we had been working with for a couple of years said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to license this technology and spin it off as, uh, as a startup, right? So we continued okay. working and, and building this device uh, that was designed to be a, a sterilizer. Um, now you have to go through the FDA 510K process before you can actually market as a sterilizer, right? So okay. I should probably be saying that. Um, in March, 2020, COVID hit. And, you know, going back to the whole, you know, adaptability uh, of, you know, founders in this case, but also project teams uh, in response to COVID, they said, all right, we're going to pivot and go from, you know, this path of creating this medical device, we're going to turn around and accelerate the development process and take this to market as a hand rinsing uh, device, right, where you can't, yeah. you can't technically market as a sterilizer. Um, but you know that it kills coronavirus, right? So Interesting. we accelerated the development. Um, you know, obviously they, they had the funding to, to move this thing along and into production. Uh, and it won a bunch of design awards. And it, with the process that we had implemented was recognized. Uh, it was won America by Design, uh, won America by Design Award last year. Um, but this product was then used to uh, reopen the schools. Right. So some of the funding came from the CARES Act to basically retrofit these hand rinsing devices, this modified design. And it was retrofit on top of existing water fountains in schools wow. where these kids were able to put their hands in, in the chamber for seven seconds 
and it would kill coronavirus. And, you know, obviously it was chemical free, right? So it doesn't dry yeah, up. So it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't harm your hands. Wow. Well, if you, if you tie some of the stuff we talked about to this point together, yeah. and you pick up to the beginning, you say to yourself, wow, I didn't know hand washing needed to be invented again. But exactly. when you think about it, we all learned way too much about washing your hands properly because <laughs> of the pandemic. And yeah. we all learned that none of us do it correctly. And so yeah. what were we told during the pandemic? Oh, you got to get your hands wet and then you got to put soap on there and you got to go in between and you got to do this and it takes 30 seconds or whatever. Yeah, and then you sing the ABCs or something, all this stuff. And, and, and then the, the issue is when you would talk to stakeholders, like a nurse, for example, these poor people had no skin left on their hands and they had sores and stuff because washing your hands that much for that rigorously with the harsh chemicals and stuff absolutely killed their hands. Sure. And, and then the other thing is you, and then there's hand sanitizers. Well, you, frankly, you, you build up a tolerance to hand sanitizers and they eventually don't work. And so, you know, wow. that's that ozone smell that you smell after a thunderstorm that is nature's natural disinfectant. Right. And so now you say, here's a great idea. I can kill all these pathogens in your hands with ozonated water in seven seconds. I don't have to, all I got to do is hold my hands in there and it does it for me wow. and I'm wow. compliant. And in seven seconds, it's done. It doesn't dry out my hands and stuff, but then you shift the, so there, the big idea was let's reinvent hand washing and make it not dry out your hands, be faster and always compliant. The second part now is how do you do that? Now that's where technology comes in and it's like, and, and, you know, the secret sauce is these little chips that you got to make that you have to put diamond coating on it. When you apply electrolysis to it, it creates the O3 or ozone and infuses ozone into the water. water. So there's a whole technical hard thing to to do too. I see. Uh, And then in the end, you send this thing to independent labs and they're, you know, they're doing Petrius testing and stuff and being like, yeah, this kills coronavirus in seven seconds. You're right. Wow. Um, and so now, now you've got this unbelievably cool disruptive technology. That's just every way better than the old way. And it's yeah. wild to think, you know, if you take a step back, something that was originally designed for an operating room, how it ends up in a kindergarten hallway. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 That is, that is so cool. So, um, no, that's, that's awesome. Very interesting technology. Um, maybe quick time for one, any, any other ones that array of things or any other ones you want to talk? I mean, I'll point this out of your website. You guys have like, uh, like I was saying, you guys have everything from waterproof phone cases to, um, military satellite, terminals, a bunch of medical devices. You guys are kind of all over the board on design. Is that fair to say? Yeah. You know, you think about that, but if you look at those products long enough, you'll see that most of them have a PC board and a processor and a display and housings. And, you know, it's really, they may look really unique, but in a lot of ways, when you peel back the onion, there's a lot of similarities too. So you build up a, you really build up a strong expertise for electronic packaging and controlling things and wireless technologies and stuff. You know, it's not as shotgun as you think, you know, there's some, there's some 
method to it and and the stuff kind of does lean on each other and the experiences cross pollinate like we've been saying sure no it's very cool well um well i think you know we'll leave it there you know i want to thank you guys for for coming on and um, sharing your experiences and, and giving us some insight on this business of innovation. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I know um, people listening well as well. So uh, thank you very much. All right, Ryan, we'll see you out at one of our hockey games. Yeah, we'll, we'll get some pond hockey going. We'll, we'll see what you're made of. Uh, not not know, a lot can, these days. You can come play in the league with we'll, us. We'll give you a tryout contract for Team <laughs> Yeah. All right. Sounds we'll buy you one of blue after the game. <laughs> uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. That's fair. High Point Capital Group is located at 1200 North Mayfair Road, Suite 300, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53226. Phone number 414-253-4600. Securities and investment advisory services offered through SagePoint Financial, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. SagePoint Financial is separately owned in other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of SagePoint Financial. Views expressed here should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities or services mentioned here. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Indexes are unmanaged and investors are not able to invest directly into any index. Sector investing may involve a greater degree of risk than investments with broader diversification. However, there is no guarantee that a diversified portfolio alone will outperform a non-diversified portfolio in any given market environment. No investment strategy, such as asset allocation, can guarantee a profit or protect against loss in periods of declining values. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, information should only be relied upon and coordinated with individual professional advice. Ryan Hitchcock believes the information presented here is accurate and was obtained from sources that are believed to be reliable. However, Ryan does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from Ryan. Statements expressed by guests on this podcast are the views of those guests only and not of Ryan Hitchcock. Statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on Ryan Hitchcock's or guest current views and assumptions and involve known and or unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.